The other day, I walked into a local gas station here in town, and as I walked in, I went to go buy myself a 79 cent extra large drink. So I grabbed my drink and I went over to the cashier to, to pay for it, but there was a line there, and uh, as I was waiting in line, I couldn't help but take a look at all the impulse buys. You know those things that tempt you as you're waiting to check out those sweets, those chocolates, those candies, those nuts. And uh, as I was taking a look at all the impulse buys, I noticed the, the impulse buy that took up the most space on the counter were actually not sweets, but were actually lottery tickets. There was just this huge glass box of lottery tickets. It told me a couple of things. Number one, a lot of people play the lottery, and they're making a lot of money off of it. But secondly, there's a lot of people dreaming about what it would be like to win the lottery. I know we're good Baptists this morning, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you won the lottery. Or maybe this would be better. Dream of it for a moment as if you inherited a large sum of money. What would you do with that money? How would you manage it? What are some things that you might dream about doing with it? Uh, as you think about that, I wanted to read uh, a few things that I found in an article that are warnings to the wealthy, those who might win the lottery or inherit a large sum of money, things not to do, because we have a tendency to think of things we would do with it. The first one is, if you win the lottery, uh, don't forget to sign the ticket or report it to the state. Apparently, there are actually a lot of people who end up losing the ticket, and then uh, someone might steal it along the way. Uh, secondly, things you shouldn't do is tell everyone you know. You'll end up finding relatives you've never met before looking for their uh, portion. Uh, thirdly, think that you are the smartest person to manage your money and finances. It encourages you to take a look at a financial advisor of sorts. Uh, fourthly, say you'll pay your debts off later. You know, uh, I got all this money, I could take care of that, but money tends to leave. I heard someone once say, if money could talk, mine is always saying goodbye. I don't know if you've had that experience. Um, fifthly, buy everything for everyone. Uh, that'll let your money go. Uh, think you don't need a budget. After all, I got all this money, I can spend it however I wish. And then lastly, I like this one, uh, what not to do is invest in all of your family and friends' business ventures that they approach you with. <laughs> uh, what I read this morning were just some warnings to the wealthy. If you might uh, find yourself with a lot of money through the lottery, or you might uh, find yourself with a large inheritance. Uh, this morning, we're going to take some time to dig into James chapter 5 in the first six verses. And we're going to talk about some warnings that God gives to the wealthy. These are the wealthy and the wicked. Those who are physically rich, but spiritually poor. In the eyes of the world, they have much. They are blessed beyond their need, but they are spiritually bankrupt. And God has some choice words for the wealthy. He has some warnings to give to the wealthy. What we're going to see this morning is it's not a sin to possess wealth, but it is a sin to mismanage it. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in James uh, chapter 5 in the six, first six verses. As you turn there in your Bibles, uh, we've been talking about the marks of spiritual maturity. James has been giving us various marks of what it looks like to grow as a, a mature believer in Christ. Well, today we're going to talk about the mark of making Jesus master over our finances. If Jesus is Lord of our life, wouldn't it naturally follow that he's master over our money? And we would consult him as our final advisor for how we should spend it and how we should live in light of it. Uh, James chapter 5, would you stand in honor of the reading of the word of God together? Uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury and have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not 
resist you. You may be seen in the word of the Lord this morning. James has some harsh words for the wicked and the wealthy. This morning I want to take some time to talk about the warning that James gives to the wealthy and the wicked in verse 1. And then the rest of our text in verses 2 to 6 will talk about the reasons why this warning is given. We'll talk about the manner in which the wealthy and the wicked are making and mismanaging what God has given them. And as a reminder, whether you believe in God or not, you will stand accountable before him. Not just for anything, but for the manner in which we make and manage our finances and do it in a righteous and honorable way. As we dig into our text this morning, I want to begin by talking about the warning in verse 1. This warning is given in the form of an invitation. And as you read, it begins and uh, gives us an invitation itself and says, come now. It's this picture here of somebody inviting others to come and listen. Uh, this is the same invitation that was given back in chapter 4, verse 13, where we were last week, where it says, come now and listen, you who make plans, but you do it without consulting God. Back in chapter 4, verse 13, he was confronting them over the sin of self-sufficiency. As they make plans without consulting God, now he confronts the wealthy and the wicked. These are unbelievers, at least those who may even claim to be believers, but they don't seem to model it. Uh, but we see that the same invitation is given, come and listen. Now, James, in a sense, wants to grab their attention. Now, we as believers should stand in contrast to those who are wealthy and wicked. Uh, the reason is because these are individuals who are mismanaging what they have. They are not consulting God as they spend their finances. As believers, as Christians, what should mark our lives if Jesus is Lord of our life, he would be master of our money. It would make sense that we don't just get our paycheck, but we thank God for it and then consult him concerning how we are to manage it. Uh, we talk about tithes and offerings at times. It's a way that we worship the Lord. Sometimes we can think about it this way and say, well, uh, Jesus owns 10% of it, or whatever percentage I set apart in my heart and I give in a cheerful manner. But the reality is, Jesus, if he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of all of it. Not just 10%, but the 90% that I spend, how I pay my bills, how I budget, how I deal with my debt, how I borrow money. It should all be in consultation to the word of God and the principles that he sets forth in scripture. Because if Jesus is Lord of my life, he would be master of my money. Come and listen. Uh, since these are unbelievers, you can just picture him walking into maybe the marketplace. And these are folks who are distracted. They're distracted by the, uh, the pursuit of wealth. They're pursuing money, and that's their ultimate cause. And we know that uh, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. And they seem to make that their God, thinking that the next promotion, the, the more money in my bank account is ultimately what's going to satisfy me and bring me what I so long for in my heart and what I so desire. And so what James is trying to do is he's trying to get their attention. They are distracted by the pursuit of worldly desires, specifically here, the pursuit of financial gain, that they don't exercise accountability before their creator. And like I said, whether they believe in God or not, we all stand accountable to him and one day we'll be judged by him. And so we get this, this command to come and to listen question this morning is, as he tries to get their attention, does God have ours? Is Jesus really the master of our money? Do we take time to consult him in our financial decisions? And so come and listen. So we, we, we've got the invitation itself. Secondly, I want to take a look at the recipients of the invitation. It says, come now, you rich. Now, the rich here, as we've already said, are the wealthy and the wicked. Those, those who are physically rich but spiritually poor. They don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And we're going to see how they mismanage their finances in light of verses 2 to 6. But these are rich. They're wealthy, but they're wicked. 
I just want to spend here for a moment to say, um, once again, it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have a lot. It is a sin uh, to mismanage what God has given us. Well, some might be thinking, well, I thought money is the root of all evil, right? No, in 1 Timothy 6.10 it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself can be a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a neutral thing. But how we use it matters. When we are wealthy, when God blesses us with wealth, and I would define it as just having more than we need, a lot of us are more wealthy than we could ever dream or imagine. When you consider wealth in that category, uh, we know that wealth is an expression of God's kindness and blessing to us. If God has given us much, if God has given us more than we need, and Jesus is master over our money, wouldn't we take into consideration how God wants us to spend the wealth that we have, the more than that we need that we have. Uh, after all, how I many you know if you've got running water in comparison to the world around us, we are wealthy. Uh, when you consider just all that we have, the clothes in our closets, the cars that we drive around, we are more wealthy than we could ever imagine. Now, in our house that we live in, we 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 don't have a place for our car, but our not only did we have a house in the last house we were in, but our car had a house. I mean, you know you're wealthy when your car has its own house that it can uh, be protected from the external things outside. And so we're more wealthy than we could imagine. Uh, but James is speaking directly to those who are physically rich, physically wealthy, but spiritually poor. Uh, and so we take this into consideration and what we get to do as believers, I mean, as, as this is written to them, is listen in on God's judgment on the wicked, the warning that he has for them. And so we talked about the invitation itself, the recipients of the invitation. Thirdly, let's take a look at the warning of the invitation. Come, you rich. And then he said, it's not very secret sensitive. Now, notice there, he says, weep and howl for the misery that's coming upon you. Whoa, James is using some of the harshest words that he's used in the letter. Uh, last time we heard him be a little bit harsh was back when he spoke of believers as adulteresses, sinners, back in chapter 4 and double-minded. Well, the reason he treats this very seriously and speaks to them in the manner he does is to show us how seriously God treats sin. Especially in how we mismanage what God has given us, uh, honor him in and to bless others. And so we get to see this judgment. And if I could describe the judgment that's described here is in two ways. It is first severe. Severe. It's so severe that they are called to weep and to howl. Uh, these, this is an expression of mourning and grief. I want you to consider for a moment, what's the last time... You weeped and you howled. I mean, something serious has had to happen, whether it's a crisis, whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it was uh, an accident that occurred. What causes you to weep and howl? Something that's pretty traumatic. I want to describe two circumstances I can think of. Back when I was in college, I had a friend who was moving from one house to another, and he got in his truck, and I was helping him move all of his stuff, and we were in Tucson. And we were driving down the road. It was at the busy time of day. And as he was driving, I don't know if he just wasn't paying attention or traffic just got crazy. He stepped on his brakes, but he didn't have time to step on it before slamming into the car in front of him. That car slammed into the car in front of it, and that car slammed into the car in front of it. Thankfully, at least to our knowledge, no one was uh, significantly hurt. But I still remember him getting out of the car, looking at what had happened. And he looked up and he said some choice words that I can't repeat. But he looked up to the heavens and he began to weep and howl. He looked to the ground and he was screaming in anger. How did this happen? He was weeping and howling because of the destruction and the damage that had just taken place. Now, as a pastor, I get to do many funerals. No kind of funeral is necessarily great. We do celebrate life, but often there are many that are unexpected. Sometimes you do funerals that are downright heartbreaking. The most heart-wrenching funeral I ever had to attend 
uh, was the one where my nephew, he was born a stillborn, and uh, went to that. And, I, and it, was, it was just a hard, hard funeral. To just know about this life as they were decorating the room and preparing for this child and to know the child, they would never watch them grow. I mean, in circumstances like that, you can understand weeping and howling. Some people express themselves more than others, but especially in the East, when a loved one passes away, they weep and they howl. Because death in and of itself is not natural nor normal. God didn't create us to experience death, but it's part of the fall. And as believers, we weep, but not without hope. Uh, and, and so I just want us to consider that for a moment, this kind of weeping and howling that they're called to do. So that means that there is great destruction and the severity of the destruction. They need to know about the judgment as God gets their attention concerning. Secondly, not only is this a severe judgment, it's also a certain one. The way that James speaks of it, he says, Weep and mourn. I mean, weep and howl for the misery that is coming upon you. Listen, they're just focused on their material wealth and their earthly pursuits for all these different things that they don't take into consideration the manner in which they're making their money or managing their money. And what they're trying, what what James is trying to do is trying to get their attention. In a sec, in a moment, he's going to say your uh, your wealth is starting to corrode. It's starting to waste away. And some wealthy individuals might say, wealthy and wicked would say, well, my clothes are not moth-eaten yet. My silver and gold, they are not yet tarnished. My riches have not corroded. My grain has not rotted. But James is saying, I want you to think about, based on the road that you're on, where you don't have a relationship with Jesus, nor accountability before and how you make or manage your money, you're on the road to certain judgment. And he wants to get their attention. The question we have to consider for us as we take a look at verse 1, as we consider the warning, after all this is for the wealthy and the wicked, is does God have our attention? Do we exercise accountability before him? Uh, just a couple words of application here. Number one, don't envy the wealthy and, their, and the wicked. Sometimes we can take a look at those who are wealthy and wicked and they seem to get away with injustice and do what they wish and they seem to have a good life. But the reality is God says, I'm going to hold them accountable. Ultimate judgment will come. And it's just a reminder that we should live in light of eternity. Whether you believe in God or not, and some people will say, well, I don't believe in God. doesn't matter. We all will be held accountable before him. But how many of you know, if you pursue riches and that's your ultimate desire in your heart, wealth isn't a bad thing, but the love of money is, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing in your life. When it becomes your ultimate pursuit. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a foundational thing that I build my life upon and pursue it above all else. If you've ever pursued wealth or success or made something the ultimate foundation of your life other than God, you found that it leads to emptiness in your heart. Uh, the interesting thing in, in Ecclesiastes, chapter uh, 6, verses 1 to 2, is that God not only blesses us with wealth, whether you believe in Him or not, but He also gives you the ability to enjoy it. Ecclesiastes 6 says this, There is an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it's common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. That is vanity. This is an evil affliction. I mean, you know, you can have all the money in the world. Take a look at the most prosperous among us, those who may even be looked up as celebrities do they have peace? Now you can buy um, um, sleep at, uh, the, uh, through any type of, of kind of drug to help you sleep at night. But how do you know you can't buy rest? You can't buy peace. There's no medication out there that will give you the peace of mind that only Jesus offers. And so you can pursue the things of the world, but do we ever find the peace of God that transcends all understanding? 
And so it's just a reminder, after all, this is spoken to the wicked and the wealthy, to say, okay, I don't need to covet that which they have. It may look as if what they have is nice and good and well, but the reality is judgment is coming. Uh, secondly, uh, consider which category you fall into. Which category do you and I fall into? The first one is, are you physically rich or physically poor? You say, well, maybe I'm right in the middle. Uh, physically rich and wealthy really means that we have more than we need. So most of us, if we're honest this morning, we have a lot more than we need. Now, someone, someone might say, I've got six shoes, but I need seven, eight, or nine shoes. Well, well, I don't need them. I really want them. But the reality is most of us are wealthy. So how do we use our wealth? How do we honor God in how we manage our finances? Uh, and if we are not wealthy in this world, James says, know that you're spiritually wealthy in Christ Jesus. And we have an eternal wealth that we can look forward to forever and ever. Secondly, the second question, of course, is are you spiritually rich or spiritually poor? Do you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? We're not just talking about religion and going to church and going through the motions of ritual. Do you have a genuine relationship with Jesus? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Have you made him savior and Lord of your life? That you've been granted forgiveness and everlasting life in heaven. Consider the fact, are you spiritually rich or poor? Thank him for the spiritual riches we have in Christ Jesus. Take time to consider the wealth, all that we have beyond our need and use it to manage it according to God's glory. And then lastly, of course, uh, make Jesus master of our money. Uh, we talked about, you know, at the beginning, some recommendations. Don't think that you can just handle your money on your own if you get all of this money. But we're reminded if God has given us financial, financial blessing, that he should be our financial advisor. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about money in the Gospels. God has a lot to say throughout Scripture about how we should make and manage our money in a godly and righteous way. How we should invest not just in temporal things, but in eternal things. So we're encouraged to, what, to make Jesus master of our money in all things. So first, we talked about the warning. In verses 2 to 6, we're going to talk about the reasons why this warning is given. And the manner in which we can guard against managing and making our finances in an ungodly manner. So we talked about the warning in verses 2 to 3. We're going to talk about the hoarding. If you ever watch, there's a show on TV, I think, out there somewhere where people hoard all these different things. And you just have a house full of, of, of stuff. But to some extent or another, we're all a little bit, we're, we're, we're good at hoarding, you know. If, I, have you ever gone to the estate sales around here? I mean, it's amazing. You walk into an estate sale, it's almost as if you're walking through people's stuff and looking through their stuff, buying their clothes and their old stuff. And it's just a reminder, we don't take anything with us. And we have a tendency just to hoard it all. I don't know how many times I've been in an estate sale and, and seen a wedding dress. I mean, it's a blessing to have the wedding dress and you wear it that day. But eventually, someone else is going to buy it. Someone else is going to wear our clothes. Someone else is going to use our things, and we don't take anything with us. But James speaks to them specifically about hoarding. Let me read it again to us. Two to three says this. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Uh, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. That last sentence sums up what verses 2 to 3 are speaking of here. They have heaped up and hoarded treasures in the last days. Uh, there are three categories by which they could express their wealth, and we might express ours. Uh, you might express your wealth in feasting lavishly, <laughs> in dressing extravagantly, uh, and spending wildly. And, and that it's covered here in verses 2 to 3 as he talks about these three categories of grain, of garments, and of gold. First he says, your riches have corroded. The word for corroded there is decayed or have become rotten. In other words, they have more than they need when it comes to their food. 
we experienced that at the potluck Wednesday. I mean, we had more than enough. We even took some of the food home and had it the next day. And God has blessed us with more than we need. Well, they're saying here, it's a reminder that they shouldn't put their ultimate trust in that which wastes away. What they're doing in that day and age is putting all of this grain away without taking into consideration how God wants them to spend it and use it and to help others with it. And they have more than they need, but instead of sharing it, they're keeping it to themselves. They're hoarding it. And the fact of the matter is eventually all the riches you've hoarded in grain are eventually going to rot and die off. You know, yesterday um, we had a chance with the girls to go out to Abilani's. We went out to the pumpkin patches, and uh, we tell Ella, you can only get a pumpkin, one that you can carry. And so don't pick one too big. And so she went out and picked her favorite pumpkin. But we were walking around, and we saw some pumpkins that look beautiful on the outside, well-rounded. I mean, perfectly symmetrical. This is the pumpkin, and you look on the side of it, and it's rotting. How many of you know that, that grain and produce and all that we have will eventually rot and decay? We can't put our ultimate trust in that. Obviously, we've got great preservatives in our day and age, but even those cans that last 10 years will eventually go bad. And James is just saying, hey, you're hoarding this grain. You're not taking into consideration God's will for how you should manage your finances and the excess of what you have beyond your need, and it's just wasting Away. The second category is garments. It says their garments are moth-eaten. Anyone want to say how big your closet is? You know, uh, when I moved out of our last house, we had one of those walk-in closets. And I'll tell you, I didn't have many, much clothes. But at, the longer we lived at that house, the more clothes I started to hoard. And most of those clothes I don't need, and some of them I don't wear. So when we moved into our new house and downsized a bit, I realized just how much I hoard. You realize how much you hoard once you move to a new place. I mean, I got rid of all these different clothes and things. And I mean, in, in our community, we have a blessing to work with uh, Salvation Army. And the Methodist Church has Holy Moly and that sort of thing. Instead of hoarding all these things, you should have just given it to Holy Moly a long time ago because it's just been sitting in my closet. But we have a tendency to hoard beyond our need. And God wants us to consider how we can best meet the needs of others and glorify Him in what we have. So he talks about garments that are mothy, and eventually they'll waste away. And then thirdly, gold and silver that are corroded. Obviously, if you're talking about silver and gold, they're not going to corrode, but they will tarnish. And it's just a reminder that the things of this world will pass away. So he goes after them for hoarding. I don't know about you, but this is a little bit convicting for me because I take a look at all the stuff I hoard and I consider, God, how can I manage what you've given me in an honorable and godly way? What I've been given beyond my need to glorify you. And we just, uh, as we take a look at scripture and apply these principles to our life, we take that into consideration. Well, we see the warning in verses 2 to 3, but the second part of verse 3, uh, he gives a, a, a very serious warning. It says in verse 3, in the second part of it, um, your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He speaks to them about this hoarding and he says, your hoarding and that which is going to eventually be corroded is going to eat up your flesh like fire and is going to give evidence against you. R remind you, this is the wealthy and the wicked. Those who are physically rich but spiritually bankrupt. And they haven't walked in accountability before God. And what God is saying here, there will come a day when you will stand accountable before me. And you will give an account for how you made your money and how you managed your money. How you made what you got and how you managed what you got. And that will serve as evidence against you. All the things you hoarded, all the ways that you didn't honor me and what you were given, you will give an account for it. So the judgment is it's going to eat your flesh like fire. Once again, not very seeker sensitive. James wants to grab their attention. He wants to show them that on the road that they're on, it's marked by de death and destruction. And ultimately, we know that Jesus Christ is the one who offers us life eternal. I mean, how many of us have mismanaged 
finances here or there, made mistakes in the past, considering the principles of Scripture. But praise be to God that we serve Jesus, who is gracious and merciful and forgiving. And if we make Jesus Savior of our life, we also make him Lord of our life as well and master of our money. And he guides us and directs us as we walk day by day. But we see this judgment and uh, this idea of hoarding and hoarding all of these things in the last days. The idea here, well, some of you may be thinking, well, when's the last days? Are we living in the last days? We ask that question a lot. Well, the last days, when it speaks of Scripture, is just between Jesus' first and his second coming. So, yes, we are living in the last days. And we're living closer to Jesus' return now than we were uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. So we are indeed living in the last days. But what he's saying here, the emphasis of this is that they're hoarding, but they're not doing it in light of eternity. They're thinking in light of the temporal and not in the eternal. And therefore, they're making the wrong kind of investments. Just a, um, a couple takeaways. Number one, uh, riches provide no relief in eternity. When you get to heaven... You meet whoever at the pearly gates, you know, God or Peter, you know how the stories go. What I'm saying is when you get to heaven, you can't say, do you guys accept Visa here? They don't. Do you accept MasterCard? Well, I've got a lot of money in my bank account. Will you take a debit of that sort? No, they don't take it there. Money doesn't serve us any uh, uh, relief in, in eternity. Uh, Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but riches, but righteousness delivers from death. The only thing that will deliver us in heaven is our relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to read this. Chuck Swindoll does a good job of explaining this in one of his commentaries. A day is coming, says James, when the true accountant will conduct his audit. On that day, the unsaved rich will be handed a bill that they can't pay. And all their earthly treasures will be like ashes. Blowing in the wind, only God's righteousness, the free gift that comes from faith in Jesus Christ, rescues a person in that day of judgment. Question is, does God have our attention? Do we know Jesus who forgives and, and delivers us from sin? Riches provide no relief in eternity. Secondly, if God gives you more than you need, invest it in eternal things. What are those things that we can, instead of hoard, invest in eternal things? That might be, you know, I gave that example of holy moly. That's just one small way of doing that. You can take your things and invest it uh, in helping others and honoring God and what you have. You invest in the church and the ministries of the church. You consider the mission of God and how you can support missionaries around the world. As we prepare for this uh, uh the holidays and you think of Lottie Moon, it's an opportunity to invest in eternal things. And we look forward to that. And instead of taking these things and say, oh, I'm just going to enjoy it for this season and this time, maybe God has some new opportunities for us. And then thirdly, if you have the ability to hoard, know that you're wealthier than you ever imagined. It means that you have more than you need. And it means that the more that we have, the more accountability we have before God for us to use our finances, use our wealth, and honor God in all of it, in all things. So we talked about the warning. We talked about the hoarding. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the cheating in verse 4. Not only were they hoarding and then focused on the temporal and not the eternal, but they were also cheating and gaining wealth, making wealth at the expense of the poor. Verse 4 gives us uh, some, some, something about that. Um, it says here, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. What has happened here is that these are landowners, and they have people working for them. They have employees, and they're cheating them out of a... Uh, a right kind of wage. They're not paying them what they promised or they're not paying them for what they should get. And it says here that the injustice that's happening cries out to the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, the picture here of the injustice crying out to God reminds you of Genesis chapter 4 verse 10 
when it speaks of Cain's blood crying out to God, if I can read that, it says in Genesis 4.10, And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground as Cain killed Abel and his blood is of injustice is crying out to God. It's a reminder that God sees injustice. Now, the wealthy and the wicked may think that they're getting away with it. They may look as if they are living luxuriously in self-indulgent life and lives and it seems as if they're getting away with murder. And the reality is God sees the injustice and will hold them accountable. For the believers, there are many who are poor, physically speaking, in the church. There are some who are wealthy, and also wealthy spiritually, but there are also some who were poor and were being taken advantage of by the rich, the wealthy, and the wicked. I think it was back in chapter 2 where James was speaking about when a rich guy comes in and you show him greater favor than the poor guy, and James pretty much said, why are you doing that? These guys are oppressing you. And mistreating you, the, the wicked and the wealthy, and they should respond accordingly. But the injustice is crying out to God, and God sees the injustice that's happening. And it should be, uh, in a sense, a relief to those who are experiencing oppression at the hands of the wealthy and wicked to say, God is going to take care of me. I don't need to fight my own battles. I'm going to allow God to fight on my behalf and deal with the injustice that has been done. So this injustice is crying out to the Lord of Sabaoth. Um, the Lord of Sabaoth is not the Lord of the Sabbath, sounds like it, the Lord of rest, but the Lord of Sabaoth is a military term. Sabaoth speaks of an army and it speaks of the Lord of angels' armies. Pictures here of, of God as the commander in chief, as he's got a, a limitless number of angels, warriors behind him, fighting with him. And so the picture here is as injustice cries out from those who are being mistreated and giving unjust wages, the Lord sees the injustice. But we're not just talking about Jesus who came in meekness and humility. We're talking about the Lord of angel armies, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of heavenly hosts. And so it's a reminder and hopefully an attention getter that those who are wealthy and wicked will stand accountable before God. You know this morning that all of us will stand, have, st have stood accountable before God and will stand accountable before God. Thankfully, as believers, our judgment is in the past. Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid for our sins in full, and as believers, the judgment has been paid in full. We are declared just in the sight of God, positionally speaking. But for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, for unbelievers, that judgment is to come and is described in Revelation, of course, as the white throne judgment. But we will stand accountable before our God. Just a couple words of application in terms of, the, of, of how they were cheating others. Number one, fear the Lord of Sabaoth. Fear the Lord Almighty, if you want to put it that way. Fear the Lord of angelic hosts and angelic Armies. He's a mighty God that we worship and we serve. So if God is the Lord of Sabaoth and you can picture him, hopefully you can this morning, he's the commander in chief and behind him are angelic armies, angelic hosts, behind him numberless individuals. Hopefully you're willing to join God's team instead of try to fight against it. <laughs> I want to be on God's team if that's who I might be fighting against. Join his team. Make Jesus your Savior and Lord. Allow Him to fight on your behalf. This is a helpful picture, especially for those who have been dealing with the injustice that has been happening to them. But this is also an encouragement for all of us. If you've ever felt alone, if you've ever felt as if you were wondering, God, how am I going to deal with this person or that person? How am I going to work through some of the challenges I'm facing? Hopefully, as you find yourself on your knees, you can almost picture God, the Lord of Sabaoth, standing over you. With the angels, angelic hosts behind you. And as you're praying before God, it's not you against the world. It's you with the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, fighting on your behalf and fighting your battles for you. Transforms the way you see prayer. 
So the next time you get on your knees, the next time you lift up prayers to the Lord, know that he is the Lord Almighty who fights on your behalf and sees the injustice around you. And he is the one who will do it in an honorable, glorified manner. And then thirdly, unjust acts of the unsaved are not forgotten. Just remember that God sees sin and God sees injustice and he's a just God. The, the, the truth of the matter is, he doesn't just overlook our sin, he pays for it in full on the cross. There has been a transaction that has occurred when we make Jesus Savior and Lord of our life. He doesn't just say, oh, I'll forgive and forget. No, he has to pay the debt through his son's death on the cross. And that's, what we see we see the justice of our God. Uh, Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give a place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes you just got to surrender all things to God and allow him to work it out in his timing. And then lastly, uh, pay a just wage. <laughs> As you take a look at the wealthy and the wicked who were taking advantage of those under them and holding back the right kind of wage, if you have the opportunity and the influence and the ability to pay others, give them a just wage. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, I'm not in that position. You know, I don't got people who work for me. Uh, I don't have employees under me. But as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of a couple things. And one of those is a waiter. How many of us go out to restaurants and uh, a waiter comes to our table and serves us? And often they're not paid minimum wage. They're paid uh, a fraction of that. And we can find ourselves cheating them of a good now, I'm one of those guys who's like, it's the survival of the fittest. If you're not a good waiter, hopefully, you know, you'll be gone soon. But nevertheless, we should give people an honest wage. And sometimes that should influence the way we tip people. We should consider how we can do it in an honorable way. And if God wants us to be gracious, maybe that's an opportunity for us to be gracious. Uh, I consider this also in different ministries you might be able to support. You know, over the years, I've found various ministries to be helpful to me. Ministries like Turning Point uh, with David Jeremiah or various things like uh, uh, um, uh, Charles Stanley and, and his ministry as well. And over the years, you get all these materials that really encourage you and uplift you. And maybe, you know, they, they just say you can give a donation. But maybe God wants me to give a little bit more. Maybe I can fund these ministries in a particular way and honor God in the mission that's going forth. I'm just giving a couple examples. What is God laying on your heart to serve him in an honorable way and give a just wage instead of cheating others out of that? So I talked about hoarding, talked about cheating. Well, thirdly, James talks about luxurious living, uh, self-indulgent living in verse 5. He says this, or do you think, or excuse me, verse 5, and you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. The word pleasure there is self-indulgence. Uh, you have not consulted God about the way you're making and managing your money. And instead of honoring God and how you spend it and investing in those eternal things, you've simply pursued hedonism. You've pursued pleasure and the things of this world. And you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Uh, the picture here is of an individual living a luxurious and self-indulgent life. He's got all that he needs. And some people might look at him and say, man, I envy that. I covet that. Man, he's living a little It's almost as if nothing bad happens to him and he gets away with the injustice that's going on. But the picture here is of an animal who's being prepared for the slaughter. Or fattening up the sheep. We're fattening up the cows, and it's almost as if one sheep is looking at the other sheep and saying, why is he getting all the food? <laughs> why are they treating him so much better than everyone else? Why is he so blessed here when the reality is his, the slaughter is coming? He's going to be barbecue tomorrow. And so we need to take a look at that and consider that. And so when you take a look at the injustice going on in the world with the wealthy and the wicked, you can look forward and say, there is justice to come. Everybody will stand and give an account before the Lord. And so we don't need to have wandering eyes or to covet our neighbor's things, especially those who are on a wicked path. 
but continue to serve the Lord and honor him in all things and see how God honors us in that. And so uh, an indulgent life, a luxurious life. Uh, number one, don't exchange temporary pleasure for eternal pain. Invest in those eternal things. Invest in your relationship with God. Invest in your relationship with others. Invest in taking time to read His Word. Secondly, find true fulfillment where only it can be found in the cross and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Luxurious living can only bring you so much pleasure for so long. If you take a look at those in the world who pursue pleasure, those who have all the money in the world to pursue hedonism, you find that they come up empty. They're longing for something more. Listen, we've got it. We're spiritually rich. Let's share Jesus with the world. So luxurious and indulgent living. Then lastly, he speaks of condemning and murdering. Okay, he's getting start, starting to get extreme. Verse 6, as we finish up the text, it says here, You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So these are wealthy, they have, they're wicked, but they also have a lot of influence. Perhaps in the courts, and they're able to, as landowners, uh, uh, put it over the, the poor and take their land and uh, uh, condemn them, even though they're innocent. And that's what the picture here is of. And it also says murdering. And it could be murder as a result of not giving them a just wage so that they cannot feed themselves, and therefore they eventually die. But it could also refer to straight-up murdering. 1 Timothy 6.10, what does it say? It, it, it says, the, um, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What it's telling us there is the love of money will reveal in your heart and be a, reveal what your heart really is and what it pursues and can be a cause of every kind of evil in your life. When money is your God and is your ultimate pursuit and it's that next promotion and it's just a little bit more money, sometimes you'll do whatever you have to do to get it. Even if that means injustice and condemning the innocent, even if that means murder, uh, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We said murder is the ultimate expression of hate. And no doubt when you love money so much, you'll do whatever you can to get it. If you ever watch some documentaries on people who have been distracted by money and getting ahead, even though they have so much, you can see how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so, just a reminder for us this morning, as we take a look at this warning to the wealthy and the wicked, those who are physically rich but spiritually poor, it's a reminder that we stand accountable before God in how we make our money and how we Spend it how we manage it. God is not just a Lord over 10% or whatever percentage we set aside to the Lord, but 100% of it. And it reminds us to take him into consideration as our final financial advisor as we take a look at our budgets. As we give and uh, we consider how much the Lord wants us to give to the various ministries of the church. As God wants us to invest in eternal things. What are those ways that we should consult God concerning? And then secondly, receive the spiritual riches God offers in Christ. This morning, it's just a reminder that we are rich beyond our wildest imaginations. Not only physically, because we have so much, especially in the country that we live in, we have so much beyond our need. But spiritually speaking, we are rich beyond our wildest dreams. You know, people talk a lot about privilege. You know, uh, that's what our society talks a lot about. You're born into a certain family and you have privilege or you have a, a color of your skin and that's privilege. Can I tell you this morning, the most privileged people are those who have passed from death to life. Those who have received the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. So if anyone wants to talk about privilege, it doesn't come from the color of my skin. It comes from the grace of Jesus Christ. And with my privilege, knowing that I've been called and justified and one day will be glorified as God is continuing to sanctify me. I want to share these riches with the dying world around me. I want to share it with my family. I want to share it with my friends and see the amazing thing God will do. Before we close this morning, I want you to consider for a moment what would happen if we actually made Jesus master of our money. 
If we actually said, God, you have 100% control over my budget this month, this week, this day. Consider how it would affect as you walk through the grocery store and take a look at some of, of those temptations, those chocolates on your way out. Would it affect some of your decisions, perhaps? But it would also affect the way we recognize God as our provider. If you want a picture of what it looks like to make Jesus master of our money, read Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Otherwise, I don't need anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I have more than I need. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The manner in which the 23rd Psalm describes God as our, is as our shepherd and not as a sheep herder. You have a sheep herder, you watch him, and what will happen is he runs around and chases the sheep to go this way or that way. The shepherd is very different. He knows us and we know him. We know his voice and the shepherd leads from the front and we follow him. When we make Jesus Lord of our life, we make him master of our money. He is our shepherd and we need nothing at all. May we entrust ourselves to his care and follow him in all these things. Can we pray? Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for James chapter 5 and these first six verses that we've read. And although they are harsh and strict words, we know, Lord, that they're written for the purpose, Father, of the good of those who love you, who've been called according to your purpose, Father. Uh, we know, Lord, that it's a, a reminder for those who, who need the accountability, who need... Father, you need to get their attention for, Lord, you to get it through this. And I pray, Father, that you do have our undivided attention. Uh, Lord, we, as your people, want to be marked by spiritual maturity. We, we want to manage and make money and, and, and manage our wealth according to your will and according to your word and serve you in all these things. Father, as many here this morning have various needs, wondering how, Lord, you're going to provide for them financially, or maybe physically, Lord, how you're going to provide for others in, in the different needs and prayer requests that they have, Lord. I pray that they, all of us would be reminded that you're our provider. You're our shepherd who leads us and guides us. You provide for our every need. We have no wants, Lord. And Father, we just surrender to you in this moment and surrender to you this word that you would guide us and direct us the coming days as we honor you, as we make you master over all things in our life. Father, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, wants to make Jesus their Savior and Lord, I pray that they can say this in their hearts as I say it aloud. Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that, spiritually speaking, I'm bankrupt. That's a debt that I could never repay for my sin. But I know that Jesus came, he died on a cross in order to grant me life eternal to forgive me of my sins. And today I make Jesus my Savior and I make him my Lord to follow him all the days of my life. Father, we thank you that you're our shepherd and we seek to follow you in all these things. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.